Well, I hope you are being well fed by our series on the plot of the Bible. And I hope you're really getting kind of the main pieces of the story so that you can understand it and then hopefully even be able to explain it or share it with other people. I'd remind you that it's important because it's a true story and it's our story. It's the story of you and me, the background of our story anyway. And um, I know that you won't remember nearly everything that we've gone through, but hopefully uh, you can get the big pieces and hopefully this is a series that we can even refer back to and you can watch the videos um, as, a, as a resource. So this time, today we're covering the second half of part three of the story of the Bible, uh, the pattern, right? So you could say it's part two of part three of the pattern. And so just a summary, quick summary of last week, there were three covenants that we looked at. The Abrahamic covenant, which was God's unconditional promise to Abraham that he would become a nation, or have many children. Um, he would be given a land or the promised land and that his his offspring would be a blessing to all nations. That was the promise God gave to Abraham. Then we looked at the Mosaic covenant, which was the moral and ceremonial and civil laws for the nation of Israel. And it was a conditional covenant between God and the Israelites. So it was, if you keep these laws, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. But based on their, the, the conditions that they would meet or not, that covenant was kept. Then we have, thirdly, the Davidic covenant that we looked at, which was God's unconditional promise, again, that there would come from David's line a king who would um, be enthroned and his kingdom would be established forever. So those three covenants. And then overall, we saw in that Old Testament timeline, the, the title of this part, a pattern, really a pattern of failure of keeping the, that mosaic conditional covenant. So there's this pattern of, God, we will obey you, we will obey, and then they break the covenant. And they say, oh, we're sorry, and we've experienced so many curses, just like you said, so we're, we're turning back to you, and the covenant is renewed. And they're saying, okay, yes, we're signing off, we're gonna obey again. Um, but then they break the covenant and they say, we're sorry. And then they're cursed and then their renewal comes. And so this pattern over and over and over, it's like when you hear sometimes um, maybe a parent say, hey, I, I mean it this time, right? It's like, that's what Israel said. Okay, I really mean it this time. But oftentimes if you hear, well, this time I mean it, you know, uh, they don't really mean it or they're not actually going to follow through on that. Um, this reminds me of the Old Testament Israelites. So uh, meanwhile, in spite of the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, God's unconditional promises to Abraham and to David are moving forward, but kind of somewhat in the background. Um, now, we only covered last time half of the Old Testament. You might want to turn in your Bible to the very beginning of to your table of contents if you're looking at a physical Bible. We finished the timeline of uh, Genesis to Esther, those first books of the Bible, and um, said that's pretty a pretty consistent straight through timeline. Uh, the chronicles kind of go through and summarize some things that have happening, but you've got you've got this Old Testament timeline, and then the second half that we'll cover now, starting with the Book of Job, it happens um, kind of within that timeline that we already looked through in various places. Okay, so it's kind of dropped in to the timeline we've already seen. Now, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail about these books, but I am gonna hopefully share 
where they're placed in that timeline, what contributions they make to the whole story, and then give some insight into how we can understand these that are kind of different genres of writing, okay? So speaking of genre, I want to mention this. Within the historical narrative genre that we've been looking at primarily, there is a sub-genre um, sometimes called law, okay? So when the New Testament, when we get there, refers to the law, we're specifically referring to um, the, the five books, the five first five books of the Bible, and um, specifically the, the Mosaic Covenant. That's the law. And law genre is kind of, it's like you're reading a law book today, but it's ancient, so it's maybe even more dry than our law books today. Um, and some of us who are reading that, Joanna and and my dad and, and David were um, right in the thick of that law right now. So it's a certain type of kind of subgenre in the historical narrative. And as we read law, um, because it's the background to our story, we have to ask, well, what relation does the law have to, to us living now in the 21st century? Should we literally be doing everything that the Mosaic law tells us to do? And the short answer to that is no, not everything because we're in a different part of the story. That's something that people who offer a lot of critique and quick glances at the Bible and say, oh, look how awful it is. They don't understand that we aren't living right now under the Mosaic covenant. So um, now some of the laws have a moral underpinning that are just as relevant to our lives today. You should not steal. You should not commit adultery, right? These things, it's like, yeah, those are just as relevant to us today. There's there's a, a morality to them that never changes over time. But some of the laws have more of a ceremonial purpose, which are unique to the Mosaic Covenant. And when we understand the later parts of the story, which we'll get to next time, we'll see that there's a different covenant for God's people now that we live in. And we read in the New Testament how things change from the Old Covenant. So you have things like the sacrificial system in the law, the, the priest and the temple regulations, all of the different cleansings that people would go through. We read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that a lot of those things have changed now in the new covenant. Same thing with the dietary laws. They change in the new covenant. So we don't have to keep the ceremonial portions of the law of Moses. Also, some of the Mosaic laws have not just a ceremonial, but a kind of a civil purpose, which may not have any bearings on the society that we live in here in, in America. We no longer live in the society that the Israelites did in a theocracy where, where God is leading, but we are called by God now to submit to our current governing authorities who are now determining uh, some of our, our, our civil laws, right? So we don't have to anymore stone someone to death who is caught in adultery, right? However, we might still learn something about the severity of the immorality of adultery from that civil law that we read in the Mosaic Covenant, but we don't apply the, the Mosaic civil law specifically in the same way because we have new laws and we're under a different government system. So all of the law, I will say this, is valuable to understand more about God and humanity and sin, but not all of it is applicable in the exact same way that it would have been to the Israelites who were reading it and applying it. Some key questions to ask when you're looking at law, by the way, are where am I at in redemptive history or where am I at in the biblical story? 
um, or, or maybe how does the cross of Jesus, how does that affect the law of Moses? And then also we can ask how, it, with a particular law, has this law been explicitly or even implicitly abrogated under uh, newer revelation from God, the, the New Testament? So God tells Peter hundreds of years after the law is given, you can now eat all animals, right? So that's our that's the current revelation revealed to us. Now, if at some point um, in in the book of Revelation, or if there's some future part of the Bible where or, or in history where it's like, okay, God says now you uh, have to go back to you can't eat all animals, then we'll be like, oh shoot, now in our place in redemptive history, now shoot, we can't have bacon, but um, but. But for now, we look at how has that old law changed in the New Testament? And has something specifically been abrogated or changed in the new law? Okay. The next portion that we jump into in the Bible after the timeline we ended with last week is what I'm going to lump together as the wisdom literature. The next five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Okay. Three of those books were written by King Solomon the third of Israel's king. Remember when they're going through that period of the kings and when they're still all united as one, one kingdom, um, Solomon was the last of those singular kings and he builds the temple and he's the wisest man in the world. Um, he writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, we think, and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Well, what do those books contribute to the story or to us? Wisdom literature helped the Israelites and helps us to answer questions about life beyond the specific laws. So it's not a covenantal agreement, these books, wisdom literature, but it is asking how can anyone live life in a beneficial or blessed way? It's not what am I obligated to do? What do I have to do because of the covenant? But how am I going to thrive in this life? And we go to God for those answers, and so do so does Solomon, um, because God designed life and He blessed life to be lived in a certain way. So we say God has that wisdom that we need to live in a in a blessed way. So the wisdom literature genre at times takes a little more work to understand than historical narrative because it's kind of more philosophical, which you gather as you read it. Just to summarize quickly, the Proverbs basically say if you live according to God's wisdom then generally life will go well for you. You'll have a long life. You'll have everything that you need. You'll have good relationships if you live according to God's wisdom, which makes sense again, because he designed the world and how life flourishes, right? Um, starting in chapter 10 of Proverbs, Solomon starts describing all of the wisdom that he's gained from God, all of the wisdom that he's learned in a bunch of those little short kind of pithy um, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes then goes on to say, as hard as you try to live a wise life, there are no guarantees. You can't control the outcome of how you live. And in a fallen world, sometimes life doesn't seem fair. So you just learn to accept it and you enjoy it as it is. The book of Job contributes something even different where it says, hey, in God's economy, from his perspective, Everything is fair and, and just, and, and God's ways are good, even when we don't understand. We can't see everything. We can't know it all. We can't understand the full significance of everything that we go through. Our wisdom is limited. God's wisdom is infinite. Okay, so Proverbs. 
Live life in this way and it will generally go well for you. Ecclesiastes, when it doesn't, still live that way and enjoy what you have. And Job, trust God that he knows when it doesn't make sense, okay? A major point of the five books here of wisdom literature is found in Psalms, Psalm 111.10, which says this, the fear of the Lord is the, you might be able to finish this statement, is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, we have to learn we don't have wisdom within ourselves. God does. So we have to seek it from him and trust him and fear him when we're not able to understand. The fear of the Lord, that's where wisdom starts. That's the theme of the Proverbs. That's kind of the final thought of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's recognized in the Psalms like I just read. That's the humbling truth of Job. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom is at. It's the beginning of wisdom. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, a lot of it's talking about mankind trying to operate in his own wisdom, right? Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, thinking that that's going to be wise because they're being wise in their own eyes, right? Where instead we should be image bearing and ruling the world with God's wisdom that comes from him. But, but they're not in the Old Testament. That's the pattern, right? Now, just like, as I said, in historical narrative that we've looked at, there's kind of the subgenre within of law. Much of the wisdom literature is filled with a different subgenre of poetry, okay? The largest section of poetry, obviously, is the book of Psalms, right? 150 poems or songs. They're songs of all sorts, war songs, love songs, lament songs, Thanksgiving songs, wisdom songs okay the book of psalms is a collection of songs written by a number of people really all over the timeline um, even all the way back to moses he wrote psalm 90 i think it is um, but most of the psalms were written around the time of the reign of king david half of the psalms being written by king david himself but written by the uh, the others by the priests and levites and just those around his time. So think 2 Samuel-ish in the Bible. Um, how to read biblical poetry is similar to how we read any poetry. In poetry, we know there's lots of metaphor. There's lots of artistic ways of saying things. There's hyperbole, right? Or, or exaggeration, kind of. Um, and the words are carefully crafted that way by the, um, by the poet so that it can have an effect on the listeners. So we know with poetry, we don't take everything literally, right? Um, Psalm 98.8 says, let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together. Okay, we, we understand by reading that, that the Bible writers aren't dumb saying, oh, the river has hands that they can clap. They're just using right poetic language to describe what's going on. However, the Psalms are written mostly with, with literal events as their background. You can read that in the, you know, the superscriptions. At the beginning of a lot of the Psalms, it will say something like most famously in Psalm 51. It's a, from a, the result, or, or it's that poem is being written right out of the situation where David had just slept with Bathsheba. And so this is David's kind of Psalm of repentance there. And it says that in, in the superscript of your Bible. Um, that's part of the inspired scripture. So um, they're, they're written about historical events. We need to remember that. But they're, but they're written in, in poetic language, okay? So we have to treat it that way. In poetry, 
biblical poetry, just like any poetry, you look for kind of repeated lines to get what's the author really saying. That's the refrain or the chorus of the song, right? Um, in Hebrew poetry like this, there's a very, like the biggest thing we have to understand is they don't use um, uh, rhyming words so much. Like we write poetry and it's like a rhymy kind of structure oftentimes. Um, but in Hebrew poetry, fortunately, that's their, not their main uh, device that they use, which is fortunate because we're not reading it in their language, so we couldn't necessarily hear the rhymes anyway. Uh, but they write with parallel lines or parallel thoughts, okay? Um, so you'll just see the structure of them laid out where this thought lines up with this thought and this thought lines up with this thought, whether they're the same thought or they're opposite, but that's how the poet is putting things together. Also important when you're reading the Psalms, um, to get the best understanding of a particular verse, read the whole song, right? You don't just take one of the lyrics in the song, but read the whole thing to see what it's actually trying to say. What do the Psalms themselves contribute to the story, the whole story? Well, in general, the Psalms, uh, which are right in the middle of the, um, of the Old Testament, they contribute this. They're, they're saying, look at who God is and look at what God has done. It's praising God. It's the praise of God is the theme of the psalm to give public acknowledgement. So in a way you could say they're spreading the image of God. That's the part that they play in the plot. And it, it, it's to help us to feel and experience what the author is saying. So the historical narrative part of the Bible by itself oftentimes can be kind of dry or seem kind of lifeless, right? But the book of the Psalms helps us really feel what's going on. And they give us even some words ourselves to express, hey, look who God is. Look what God has done. So it, it brings kind of some of the emotion into the story and helps us understand from that level as opposed to just the information of, well, here's what happened. The next books of the Old Testament, after those five of wisdom literature, are called the prophets. The prophets, um, we don't want to skip over them because they're, that's literally a fifth of the entire Bible. It's 17 books, right? Four really long ones and 12 or 13 um, short ones. The prophets, prophet means just somebody who speaks for another person. Biblical prophets are speaking on behalf of God, okay? The biblical prophets were God's representatives in his covenant with Israel, okay? So Moses, you could say, was kind of the first prophet, um, but now we come to these later, later prophets. Um, when are these prophets speaking? Well, they're primarily speaking during, again, the time of the kings, during kind of those ups and downs, and then even after that time and after uh, the southern kingdom returns back to the land after the exile. So God raises up these prophets really to confront Israel and Judah and their kings for breaking the covenant. I've heard it said that they're like the prosecuting attorneys in God's case against Israel, calling those nations and calling that nation to repent. Okay, they also confront some of the other nations at times for their sins on behalf of God. So that's what they're that's what they're doing. They're saying return to the covenant. You're breaking the covenant. Return to it. And um, don't think of the biblical prophets like fortune tellers. That's kind of what prophet may sound like to some of us. But a prophet in the Bible is, is more like a preacher, okay? Um, and they're saying, hey, 
Remember God's word. Remember the law. Stop breaking it. Here's what God said. Here's what you're doing. You need to repent. That's the, the primary role kind of of the, of the prophet. Now, they are also predictors, both of coming judgment and coming blessing. Um, they predict judgment that's going to come to many people because of their disobedience. Oftentimes that's called the day of the Lord. And then they predict blessings that are going to come to some of God's people, um, called the remnant oftentimes, uh, because they have repented. So they say you are actually going to be blessed in the future. They also foretell in ways of the sure hope of God's unilateral promises coming true. So the Abrahamic covenant, there, there is a promised land, there is a people of God, and the world will be blessed through Abraham's seed. And they talk a little bit about that. Um, to the covenant to David, the prophets talk about, hey, someone from David's throne will rule with justice and peace forever. So they're predicting the, f the future in that way. And they're talking kind of on and off about some little specifics of that. Um, they talk about these um, promises, they will be fulfilled in a Messiah kind of character, okay? And so we get bits and pieces in the prophet of what some of that will look like in the future. But the prophets are not just predictors, they're, they're like preachers. In fact, most of what we read about in the prophets um, in that section of scripture is not predictive, okay? It's mostly just calling people to the covenant. And even of the little portion that is predictive, most of what was predicted has already been fulfilled around the time of Christ or, or shortly after that, okay? Some key keys to reading and understanding the prophets. The preaching portion, the key to understanding that is Deuteronomy 28 through 30. I mentioned it last time. Remember those chapters. You will be blessed if you obey. You will be cursed, Israel, if you don't. It's a life or death decision. That's how you have to understand the preaching portion. They're just calling people back to that. How to read the predictive portion. Well, in prophetic writing, oftentimes uh, the timelines are kind of wacky, right? Um, so a prophet might jump from kind of the next decade to centuries away or even millennia away, and you don't even know that he's going kind of back and forth between the two or multiple of those. So there's oftentimes in prophetic predictions, there's double fulfillments or even multiple fulfillments. So if a prophet speaks about, like Joel speaks about the day of the Lord, a day of, of judgment for disobedience, that's coming. They may be referring to 586 BC when Judah was exiled out of Jerusalem. They might be talking about 70 AD when the, the temple of Jesus day was destroyed. They might be talking about um, the end of all time when the whole world is going to be judged. That's the day of the Lord. Um, or he may be talking about all of those and kind of going in and out of those different ones. So um, it's just a little bit wacky of a timeline when you're looking at the prophets. such as the nature of how they see things or the, how God reveals things to them. I've heard it best described as it's like looking at kind of the top of a mountain range as you're looking at peaks as they go away from you of those mountains. All that you can see is the top of those mountains. You don't see like in between in those valleys. So if if the, the distance in those valleys represents a duration of time, it's like you, you can't see that part. All you can see is the tips and they kind of look like they're basically the in the in the same space. And so that's kind of how the prophets speak um, predictively. Just a couple key questions to ask when reading the prophets. To whom was this being spoken or foretold? So Important to remember, just because 
that says something about what's going to happen to Israel, it doesn't mean that that applies to America. God didn't covenant with America's founding fathers, the Mosaic covenant. Okay. So remember to, to whom was this being spoken or, 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 or written? And then another question to ask is regardless of who it was to, what can I learn about God and mankind? Even if it's not directly written to me, what still do we gather about the, um, about God and mankind? So the overview, again, if you turn to your table of contents, it might be helpful. We have the historical kind of narrative books of Genesis through Esther. That was the last teaching. That includes within it those first five books, the law or the Torah. And then you have five books of wisdom literature, Job through Song of Solomon, which is written mostly in the time when the kingdom was united under um, David and, and Solomon. Um, so first and second Samuel, first Kings. And then you have the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, who were written mostly during the period of the divided kingdom and, and after the divided kingdom, after King Solomon. So um, there's kind of a layout of it. If you're ever reading one part of the Bible, a specific part, and you're not sure where it fits, look at that timeline that we distributed to you last time um, and, and talk to other people or get other resources. Seek out where you're reading in the story before you just start kind of blindly reading if you don't remember what we talk about. Um, ask someone. If you're going to jump into the book of Ezra, then then figure out, okay, what, what time period is this in so that I can understand it correctly? There's great resources. I'll post um, online on Realm um, that uh, online resources, there's great books, um, single volume commentary study Bibles that are really helpful that if you're going to jump into a particular book, the book of Micah, you might get a quick few paragraph introduction on where are we at in the story? What's this book actually going to be talking about? So we'll give that those suggested resources. Before we close out this part, um, I just want to point out what we learn about God and mankind. Um, what we learned about God is, is one that he is, I mean, of many things, he is sovereign. God will carry out his plan. So God sets forth his purpose in part one. And despite the problem in part two, God, uh, in part two, he gives a, a, a hint of um, how he's going to have victory over the problem, right? The crushing of the head of the serpent. And then despite the pattern that we see in, in part three, we are reading things like not one word that the Lord God had spoken had failed. So we're, we're learning already that he always does what he says he will do. Even when people are not doing it, God always does. Even despite evil, there's that famous verse at the end of Genesis from Joseph. He tells his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, these things you did against me, you meant for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. And I mean, ultimately that God's promises would be fulfilled. So even through evil, God is sovereignly able to work because he's all powerful. You think about his victory over Pharaoh and he says in Exodus 9, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God defeats the most powerful person in the world at the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. God is sovereign over all. We also learn in this part of the Bible that God is holy. Holy means that he is set apart. He's set apart from that which is unclean and that which is sinful. And a lot of the law is are, are stipulations and 
um, cleansings for the, the covering of sin because the holy God was going to be encamping among the people. And because God is holy, he detests sin and rebellion and those things that go against his holiness. And he's perfectly right to bring consequences to those things, even major consequences. We didn't talk a lot about these, but um, I mean, drastic things happen because of sinfulness getting uh, in contact with holiness in the Old Testament. I think of Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers. Some of us are about to read this, I think, tomorrow or in the next couple of days. Um, there's people complaining about Moses' leadership, and God causes the earth literally to open up and swallow them. And then f that's followed by fire coming down from heaven and devouring people, and then eventually people complain about that. And so 15,000 more, I think, are um, consumed by and die through a plague. Okay, so, so there is, um, God is holy, which means you don't just go kind of waltzing into his presence on your own terms, but he lays out those terms. Thirdly, God is loving. I hope you see that as we look at the Old Testament. God's character is best described in Exodus 34 that says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. But we see God's love in the Old Testament. We see that God is able to save and he wants to save. Time and time again, we're seeing he rescues his people whenever they cry out to him because he loves them. Even the prophets that are speaking a lot about the judgment of God, God, it's, it's like he's using them to call out to his people in love. Joel 2.13 says, return to the Lord your God. This is God telling his people, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. God loves you when you return to him. He wants you. He wants to be near you. He wants you to be near to him. He loves you. God is sovereign. He's holy. He's loving, among other things we could say about God. I mentioned last week, based on the story, what we've learned about mankind. Really, nothing has changed since part two regarding the problem of sin and death, right? And man can't seem to overcome his rebellion against God. Their trajectory is failure. And even after God lays out a specific plan for how to kind of take care of the sin problem, the, the sacrificial system in the temple, they can't even keep that law. And so we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament, different places, different kind of rule arrangements, different judges, different kings, multiple recommitments, warning after warning from the prophets, and even heavy judgments and discipline, men and women are unable to help themselves out of the problem. I think that's the main thing God is telling to us in, in the pattern. You don't have it within you to overcome sin and death. Psalm 53, 2 and 3 says it well. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Maybe a summary of what we know about man 
God and mankind comes from Nehemiah 9.33. The Levites tell the people of God, or, or, or they're, they're, they're talking in front of the people of God, and they say, God, you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. That's right at the end of the, the timeline in the book of Nehemiah. You have been faithful. We have acted wickedly. That's the pattern of the Old Testament. So where are we at in the story? If mankind can't fix the problem, we can't ward off destruction, um, and we certainly can't properly image and fill and rule, then how will this problem of sin be resolved? I asked it last time. Um, an option seemed to be the sacrifices in the temple, but that wasn't a long-term plan because people keep sinning, right? So there's always another sacrifice that's going to be needed. And those sacrifices, they're good and they're required at the time to atone for sin. That's what God gave them. But they couldn't make someone perfect. If they could, then another sacrifice would never be needed again. That's what Hebrews tells us. So the sacrifices didn't solve the root problem of sin. And that image of God cannot show fully through us because of the disease of Adam that infects us all. So the problem of sin and death, we're, we're finding out, they, they need to be dealt with in a different way once and for all. So we end the Old Testament knowing this, something's got to change. In order for God's purpose to be fulfilled in humanity, image, fill, and rule, there must be a solution to the problem, sin and death, and that solution isn't going to come from man being able to accomplish it. We see in this very repeated pattern throughout the Old Testament. So we enter into the New Testament next time hopeful. We know that God has already showed himself faithful to his promises. We know that what God says happens. Remember at the creation of the world, he spoke and it happened. The kind of predominant promise in the Old Testament that God keeps is the Mosaic Covenant. Humans aren't keeping it, but God is. He is fulfilling his side over and over again, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. So God has shown himself faithful to his promises, but there are other promises that we've read about in the Old Testament that haven't yet happened that we're still at this point in the story counting on happening. We're hopeful and people who were living in the intertestamental period before the New Testament comes uh, and the events of that, they're, they're, they're hopeful because he's promised that Eve's offspring will crush the head of Satan. He's promised that Abraham's offspring will be a blessing to the whole world. He's promised that David's offspring will be a, will provide a king and a throne that will last forever. He's promised a Messiah who will bring ultimate judgment on evil and he'll bring peace with God for his people. But um, if we don't know the story, we would still be wondering, if we don't know what happens after that, which I know we do, but we'd be wondering, oh gosh, even if God provides this promised Messiah or king, haven't we already tried kings? <laughs> haven't we already tried the priest system? Haven't we already tried prophets? Well, those things haven't worked. So something needs to be different. Something's got to change. And so to end, I just want to have us listen to the prophets, who I like to kind of foreshadow what's coming next, because each part has kind of a foreshadowing section. Um, and I want to 
to, to end this just by listening to their words of hope about that change and that different that's going to come. So Ezekiel chapter 36 first says this, verses 25 and 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed or clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. There's this recreation kind of um, understanding there. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and listen, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. I will do that. And then Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, it's prophesied, declares the Lord. When I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. Not, not like that. My covenant that they broke, he says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to what that covenant is. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then in, later in verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How will that happen? What will qual qualitatively change to break the pattern? Find out next time.